1: Be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and the guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Eerie Reality with Shane Jones. What's up, guys? And thanks for tuning into the show. I'm your curator of the unknown, Shane, as always. And uh, today, I have an interview with one of the awesome filmmakers from Small Town Monsters, but... Before we can get into this awesome interview, into his research, we first got to cover the front of house stuff, of course. So if you guys enjoy the show, if you guys don't mind leaving a rating, I definitely appreciate it. If uh, you guys drop a five-star rating on iTunes and you leave and you leave an awesome review, then I will read it on the show, of course, and give you guys a shout out. Uh, if you guys want to help the show grow, you can always share it with a friend, tag friends and posts. Uh, there's multiple ways to get it out. One of the best ways, of course, like I said, is sharing with a friend. So anything you guys do, I definitely appreciate Uh, If you guys want to get updates on anything going on with the show, uh, any cool stuff that I happen to find, uh, you guys can pop over to the social media and get updates on all that kind of stuff. Uh, If you guys want to pop in and have some awesome conversations with some awesome people, you guys can check out the Telegram or the Discord. Uh, Still building up, trying to be a little bit more active in there. Uh, But of course, I need your guys' help having conversations in there. Um, interacting with each other in order to help that grow. So anything you guys do, anything you guys pop in and do, I definitely appreciate. Uh, If anybody's interested in being a guest on the show, whether you're an author, researcher, experiencer, contactee... Uh, Open minded individual, philosopher, the list goes on and on. If uh, you fit any of those categories, I definitely want to have a conversation with you. So there's multiple ways to get a hold of me, of course, uh, one of which is through Instagram, which is the one I'm the most active on. Uh, you guys can also email me at inquiries of our reality podcast at outlook.com, or you can go to the link tree and fill out the submission form, and that'll go directly to my email. Um, I know I say this on every single show, and I will continue to say it on every single show. More often than not, it seems like everything that I send out goes to the spam or junk folder. So I do reply to every single message I get. So make sure it doesn't get lost within your spam or junk folder. If you guys want to check out more stuff that I'm doing and you guys are into Bizarre Encounters, then definitely go check out Bizarre Encounters because it lives up to the name. It's exactly what it is. And uh, over there, I got two awesome co-hosts, Orin and Jenny. Uh, They're always doing some awesome work, always throwing in new theories and ideas into things. So definitely go in and check that out if it sounds like something that's going to interest you. If you want to be able to keep tabs on all the things I'm doing, you guys can go and check out Open Minds Media. Uh, The Instagram, I do post things for every single show that I do across that. So it's kind of like the one-stop shop for everything that I do. Uh, If you guys want to support the show, there's multiple ways to do so, one of which is becoming an awesome Patreon member, such as Brandy or Brian. Uh, There's multiple tiers over there, uh, so go and figure out which one suits you the best. Uh, You'll get ad-free episodes, you'll get early access to episodes, uh, live episodes of shows, live replays if you're not able to make it to the live shows, of course, which is video format. Uh, There's a lot of cool stuff going on the Patreon, still building it up, of course, but uh, go and check it out and... If you guys want to support the show in a different way, you guys can always donate to the show directly through Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, or you can go to Red Circle, which is the RSS host, and you can donate directly on there. Uh, The third way you guys can support the show is by going and checking out the Open Minds Media merch store. There you'll find merchandise for all of the different shows that I do. And uh, if you guys buy anything off of there... Uh, if you guys don't mind sending me a picture of you wearing the shirt, I would definitely love to give you guys a shout out on the page and tag you in it and uh, show love and support from others and get to see the logo out and about. Definitely a cool thing. Uh, if you guys want to get yourself some other types of merchandise, you guys can go and check out Crypto Teology. Joe's always killing it over there with his awesome designs pertaining to cryptids, paranormal, aliens, all that stuff. Always adding new stuff. So I guarantee if you go and you look through the pages, you'll find something that you like. Uh, everything that I mentioned, all available under the link tree, which is lankt period slash increase of Our Reality Podcast. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, cryptozoologist, researcher, and filmmaker, Alex Petikoff. How's it going today, man? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure for uh, to actually sit down and have a conversation with you one-on-one because uh, we did a show on Bizarre Encounters a while ago, but uh, we didn't get the opportunity to have the one-on-one. And I feel like uh, when we ever, whenever I have that opportunity, we really get to get into the deep stuff. So I think this will be a really fun conversation, man. Definitely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, for anybody that isn't familiar with your work and uh, what you do, why don't you kind of give them a rough idea about uh, who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah, so my name is Alex Petikov. I'm a a filmmaker, cryptozoology researcher, uh, outdoorsman, kind of, uh, I don't know, I kind of give myself those titles. And um, yeah, I just like to get out in the woods and, and have a good time. That's also part of it. That's a big aspect of it. But I do films on various cryptid creatures, primarily Sasquatch related Sasquatch or Bigfoot, that's probably where people will be most familiar with me. So I do a uh, documentary series called Bigfoot Beyond the Trail on the Small Town Monsters YouTube channel. And it's basically a investigative documentary series where uh, we go around different parts of the United States and North America looking into Sasquatch cases, interviewing eyewitnesses, spending boots on the ground time, looking for evidence actually in the habitats, Uh, just kind of really trying to approach it rationally and level-headed. And also it's an adventure series. So you're kind of coming along for the ride with us and we go to some, we're really blessed to go to some epic locations. So it's part nature documentaries, part Sasquatch investigations, part just having a good time. And, uh, that's sort of what I'm probably most known for, but I've done other stuff on other cryptids, such as mystery, big cats, uh, lake monsters and that sort of thing. But nowadays it's mostly Sasquatch.
1: Um, I'd like to get a well-rounded view on a lot of your works. I know you've gotten to travel to a lot of places, such as like Alaska, Florida, like all over the place as far as North America goes. But uh, what got you started rolling? Like, what what inspired you to become a filmmaker, and what started getting you into like the whole cryptozoology side of things?
0: Yeah, I think it was just a combination of factors. I was into uh, a lot of the topics mentioned, so I just ever since I was younger, I was really intrigued by. Cryptozoology, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, just mysteries around the world, primarily creatures. And then uh, uh, growing up in the state of New Hampshire, the very outdoorsy kind of state. We are the second most forested state in the country after Maine. So there's a lot of woods. Grew up kind of running around and catching snakes and frogs and that sort of thing, (laughs) as I think kids should mostly grow up. Unless you live somewhere where there's very venomous snakes. Otherwise, I don't recommend catching them. But
1: uh, <laughs> Not unless you know we, how to handle them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you know what you're doing. We're, we don't
0: have anything super venomous up here. Our, our threats up here are moose and that kind of thing, the bigger the bigger animals. But, uh, yeah, I just was always interested in the outdoors and got to uh, really get involved in some of that throughout high school, doing some naturalism and survival kind of training and learning the ways of the land and just gained an appreciation for it. Became a hiker and a backpacker and... Then I was also uh, really interested in documentary filmmaking and I studied communications and did a lot of media kind of stuff in school. And I feel like those three passions, cryptozoology, the outdoors and filmmaking kind of have merged in the way I approach things. So uh, that I think has really influenced the way that I do these films because they're part, as I was talking about adventure, you know, part hiking, backpacking stuff, part survivor man, part, investigative, just kind of all of the above. So that's really kind of where those inspirations come from. And I think they they mesh pretty well together for me, kind of as a as a, th- a trio of, of interests.
1: I mean, a lot of people say it too. You can't just go into the woods just uh, hoping to only see Sasquatch. You got to enjoy your time being out there to begin with. So if you're into the survival stuff, you're into the woods to begin with, then you're never going to have a bad time, even if you don't find anything. So, you know, at least you can keep it interesting, at least for yourself uh, when you get to go out there and experience things. But uh, as far as like getting uh, hooked up with small town monsters and starting to uh, do crypto documentaries, like how did you exactly get into that and get intermixed with them? And what was your first documentary that you worked on that was uh, like a decent production value that wasn't just uh, you know you trying to kind of get stuff rolling? What was your first like solid documentary?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I w- I wouldn't say yeah. <laughs> well, the story's funny because I guess it was my first really ever cryptid documentary was just a short I had done on the Loch Ness monster called mystery at Loch Ness. And I wouldn't say it has great production values or anything like that. Nowadays, (laughs) (laughs) this was, this was a while ago. Um, But uh, back in 2015, 2016 and uh, Seth of small town monsters had just kind of started it and had noticed that film and then wanted to show it at an event they were doing in Ohio called the Minerva monster day. So I actually got to go out there And meet Seth and them. And then I just started doing projects on and off with them uh, for a while. I think we had a similar approach. We were kind of trying to be very rational and level-headed. And this was like 2015, 2016 time where reality TV had been around for a while. I think a lot of the cryptid topics, Bigfoot, that sort of thing had suffered in the last decade before that or so with there not being as much serious coverage of it, I suppose, from the media. Uh, Producing reality TV is a lot cheaper than doing an investigative in-depth series where you're testing samples. It's just easier to put a bunch of people who hunt Bigfoot in a room and instigate things and make them fight each other. That's easier. And that's why reality TV is everywhere now. It's all over the place. Uh, Whereas I grew up on some of the more, I like to say, serious programs that depicted cryptozoology and, and the unknown. So we're talking about things like in search of animal X monster quest was a big one. When, when I was growing up, monster quest was a, was a huge one. And that's that one really, of the
1: legends. That's yeah, still everybody's of, personal favorites. <laughs> you're right. Right. Cause
0: they covered so much, but they, they approached it with somewhat of a respect as opposed to a lot of the reality TV. I mean, even finding Bigfoot, which is kind of more reality TV. I, I give them credit because they, they uh, really inspired a lot of people. they, brought the idea that Bigfoot wasn't just in the Pacific Northwest or in in the South in in the Skunk Ape Territory they they covered everywhere Um, but I think you know like I said in that 2015 time period we were there was a lot of us kind of looking at saying well you know there's nothing really that that represents what we would like these topics are to be portrayed as so we kind of just did it on our on our own as independents And I think that's Seth and I really shared a lot of that sort of um, wanting to be serious about it. So we were not just people making these films for the sake of making them or some network executive just doing a Bigfoot series because he thinks it's going to sell. We were actually doing it because we were interested in those topics. And this is how I'd like this to be portrayed. You know, that's sort of the attitude I took with it. So uh, that's why I think with Small Town Monsters, it just kind of worked. And um, here I am, you know, almost six something years later and, you know, working with small town monsters and uh, doing my own series with them. And I've done a few series and films with them. But, you know, a lot of times we were just doing projects by projects and it started out small. I mean, it was just a couple people and now it's sort of grown and we have a, a whole really production crew and, and uh, a, a lot of us that are researchers. And it's just a really cool kind of concept. And I love the way it's developed and what it's kind of turned into.
1: I mean, small town monsters, as far as I'm concerned, is probably one of the most respected like production companies as far as like cryptid documentaries go. Cause like you said, a lot of the people that are really into this stuff and really researching stuff, that's what they want. They don't want to see the extravagant things that are almost like the cryptid version of like ghost hunters or something like that. Right. Like we want to sit down have the true information, not have it be over extravagant. You want it for the information that it is and it presents it as what it is and doesn't try to make it sound like it's something that it's not. So I've always really really respected small town monsters and it's really awesome that you got to kind of start off on the ground floor of that and build it up and it seems like you're kind of one of like the the main names that's always associated with it because I always joke with uh, my girlfriend because I'll watch um, this channel called uh, undiscovered or Un- undefined something like that it's on uh, my Samsung like TV app and they always oh, cool. seem to play the small town monster stuff and once in a while I see you pop up on there and I'm like hey that's the guy
0: <laughs> like he's been on my yeah. show. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause like I said, I mean, we, what we've kind of created is something it's not just where it started out. It was just kind of films that were dedicated to small town folklore, like the Minerva monster, or even Mothman point pleasant, West Virginia and other areas. And they were just films, you know, there'd be one or two films a year. Now it's like, I mean, we do almost three feature films a year. We have uh, the YouTube side of things where we do a lot of different content than the traditional films whereas those films are very heavy in let's say a specific topic and you're interviewing dozens of people that are associated with that the ones who research it and then you have different films like on the trail of bigfoot or on the trail of ufos where you're kind of following investigators like seth and then the YouTube side of thing is where, you know, with my series, Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, I kind of get to do whatever I want with it. And the way I want some to investigate some of these Bigfoot topics, and we have other series on YouTube as well. And uh, we're doing publishing now, too. And we're about to host our first sort of event in, uh, in the first weekend in June called Monster Fest in Ohio, which is sort of a, a fusion event. It's, it's going to be not just a traditional kind of cryptid or paranormal event where you have lectures all day long. There will be a few people speaking but there's also a whole room that's dedicated to people doing podcasts. There's uh, people that were involved in lots of different encrypted things, the Mothman prophecies film. So it's just so cool seeing what small town monsters has become and how many different people are involved and kind of the roles they play. Whereas I kind of get to do my thing and then maybe other folks are doing other things at the same time. So it's been really cool to just kind of see that develop. And um, yeah, we just, like I said, we just try to keep doing our thing and, Um, It's cool to have the creative freedom as well to, you know, I don't have some network breathing down my neck saying, oh, you should add some fake Bigfoot sounds in here to make it more interesting, right? Um, Don't have that. So that's, it's been, uh, it's been pretty awesome.
1: I say it's a beautiful thing to be able to influence the next generation of researchers, but doing it in a, in the proper research way. Not like I was saying, like where you're just over extravagant, trying to make stuff as entertaining as possible, but not really getting a real grasp on what the real information is. Because I mean... For a lot of people, I mean, even Finding Bigfoot, I definitely really enjoyed that show, but they almost made it seem like at the end of every single episode, they were like right there, like there was going to be one on screen where they always like got you going, but as far as Small Town Monsters goes, it's definitely one of those things where it keeps your interest the entire time, but for a totally different reason. It's not like you're thinking that the next shot is going to be that specific shot of whatever cryptid you're trying to see. You're excited for the information because you guys just come at it from a full, well-rounded view and you kind of give people the opportunity to kind of come up with their own decisions rather than coming at them and saying, like, this is what it is. This is what it is. Because when you do that, it kind of throws the opportunity for people to be able to really theorize. So in extent it kind of stops the research at a certain extent if you're giving definite answers because it's one of those things that's kind of hard to have definite answers so you kind of just have to influence people to be able to think for themselves and I think that you guys have had a very very uh very good way of doing that as far as like your films go
0: yeah thank you I mean I try to tell people just through my series and everything Uh, just to do your own research. Don't trust me just because I'm a guy on YouTube running around the woods uh, in crazy situations. Don't trust me. I'm not some expert all knowing or anything like that. I'm willing to have the conversation. And I just want people to realize that unfortunately, there is a lot of fakery and hoaxing out there. And, and a lot of these, a lot of people think that, you know, going on TV, that's like the end all be all that's like your should be your goal if you're a researcher, but I've had bad experiences with TV. I know so many people that are involved in these topics that have had bad experiences being on TV because they don't fundamentally care about the topic or the truth. I mean, that's just the, the very few programs. I mean, the, finding Bigfoot, like I said, I mean, I think they did as good as they could. Um, but even if you talk to like Cliff and Bobo, and I know those guys, they'll tell you, you know, we did the best we could for the format we had. Ultimately, the networks had a say. I mean, to their credit, they stopped any kind of faking or hoaxing at least some of the stories that Cliff and Bobo have talked about, you know, the crew and the network trying to pull a fast one on them, and they basically threatened a mutiny. So the story goes. Um, so they managed to keep it on the level of, you know, we're not because those guys are all into Bigfoot outside of TV, right? So yeah, they're, uh, they're honest
1: researchers, up. and they just kind of got yeah. wrapped up with the TV network that was kind of pushing they're, them in the yeah. wrong direction. And they don't,
0: they don't, um, you they know, they're not playing a role. I mean, I've seen other programs where people are playing the role of a Bigfoot researcher or they're playing the role of some kind of paranormal investigator and it just comes off as cheesy. I mean, if you're the same on camera as you are off camera, that's how you know somebody is, is really, it's kind of a genuine character. Right. So um, but you know, not focusing specifically on finding Bigfoot, but like I said, there's just other TV out there that I think is just not, it's not up to par. And I think there's a reason why people gravitate towards stuff like us. And there's other independent folks as well. that are doing a fantastic job, just a similar kind of thing. Just talking about, Hey, let's just portray the truth instead of just sensationalizing it all. I mean, uh, with some of our metrics, we compete with some of these network programs and probably do better than some of them. Uh, so, and we you know, we're not having to add fake cheesy sounds or fake footprints or thermal videos or anything like that. So it's, I mean, you tell me, is it, is it really that, that is that what has to be done? I don't think that has to be the, the, um, the way we have to go about this topic, but network executives of course think they know better and think they know what'll sell. Right. So um, like I said, overall, I'm just glad to be in a position where I can kind of do these things and, and do it the way I like to do it and portray them in a way I think they deserve to be portrayed. Uh, and it's just, once you really get into it, it's so fascinating and, the the truth goes deep enough that it's not it's not limited I don't think by um, you know having to sensationalize anything like that you can go beyond that and and actually just talk about well this is a crazy thing that I found there's a crazy connection to this person who saw something here and then your kind of your mind starts spinning and that's what you can portray to people like this is re- genuinely what happened and that's really cool
1: I mean sometimes i feel like the big Big TV stuff is almost like a necessary evil, though, because sometimes you kind of need to at least have one show kind of be there to kind of get it into the mainstream because it inspires a new generation of people. And then once they really get into it, then they start getting into the in-depth research. But, you know, if you don't have the extravagant stuff to kind of catch people's eye at first, like who knows where people might be. Sometimes it's it's needed to kind of bring it into the mainstream light so that people don't feel so uh, like they don't feel like they're getting cast away for having these experiences happen to them like if they see a show that's being talked about on mainstream I'm sure it it helps a lot of people be able to actually come out and talk about their experiences because they don't feel like they have to hide it in the dark anymore and then it probably benefits you guys too because you know people uh, will watch shows like that and then when you guys kind of come through with a crew and you start looking into these things then somebody that normally wouldn't have told their story now having watched these kind of shows on like Discovery Channel and stuff will probably a little bit more so now be interested in actually telling their story and not feel like they're just going to get scrutinized for it so it has its benefits i think
0: yeah i think it's it's definitely there's there's like a give and a take i mean i know just like i said having experience with tv people um they can be very unscrupulous and uh you know jerks to be frank i mean just some of the kind of stuff you know being dragged along for something or Uh, Even just recently, I've gotten three or four different invites based off of our Alaska stuff. Oh, we'd like to do some Adventure Alaska series or whatever. And then the people, they want to get your information, right? They want you to tell them about stuff that is going on. Then they run away with that information. You'll never hear from them again. And they'll have their people talking about the same stuff. It's happened before. Believe me, it's very cutthroat. Uh, But I think you are right about the social aspect. I mean, like I said, finding Bigfoot. Really, kind of popularized Bigfoot in a way that many shows hadn't before. I mean, you had Monster Quest and other things that set the groundwork and inspired a lot of us actually to actually get involved. But finding Bigfoot popularized the idea that Bigfoot was found across the country in certain areas where there's a history of activity up and down the Appalachians. Uh, nobody had really covered that in, in great extent uh, prior to that. You know, just not just the Pacific Northwest parts of the, um, you know, the upper kind of Midwest. Uh, you know, the Minnesota, Wisconsin, those kind of areas where you have large tracts of woods that are similar to habitats in Canada. So they covered a lot of that. And I think they did a great job. Um, I think a lot of these shows unfortunately do do a disservice also because some of the information they portray either isn't accurate or it's just straight up stolen ideas from people. I mean, we, we legitimately have had, in my opinion, things that we've done that have been, you know, eight months later, we see it appearing on a you know popular TV show involving Bigfoot. Um, and I have people messaging me saying, I think these guys stole your idea. And it's it's kind of funny. I mean, you know that these these uh, productions have production assistants and people that scour the Internet and see what's popular. And I've had other people tell me, you know, experiences of having their ideas suddenly show up on a show months later, you know, out of after being either asked to be on the show or having your stuff out there. So it's kind of interesting that that happens, but um, most people, they just, a lot of people that watch this stuff, maybe they just want to be entertained and that's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, You know, they're not taking it as seriously, but for some, I mean, in the extreme cases I've heard over the years of programs kind of abusing eyewitnesses and making them feel sort of either cutting up their, their encounter in a way that it made them sound like they were saying something else uh, you know, Make the encounter uh, sound
1: a scarier rather than like something scary, just scarier. walking across the road. It jumped across the road and it stared me right in the eyes when it was happening.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people see, I mean, I know people that used to watch shows like finding Bigfoot back in the day to just laugh at it and be like, Oh, it's so silly and stupid. So I understand why some people would be maybe reserved wanting to come public with their encounters, but you're right. There is like a numbing effect where it kind of numbs the stigma associated with some of these encounters where people say, okay, there's, there's a big show out about this topic. I saw one of these things. Maybe it's not as bad for me to share my story. I totally agree. I think that's, that's definitely valid, but um, I think, you know, it just leaves, leaves something to be desired. And um, overall, there's been a lot of these programs and there, there continues to be, I mean, there's, there's always kind of a market for it, but I think the way that it goes about, it, it's just sort of, sort of funny, especially in some of the newer ones. Uh, but uh, like I said, I, I, we really try to model some of our work on some of the older stuff and, kind of more, more of a serious approach. And, you know, if we have something happen, we'll let you know. If not, we're we're not going to put some cheesy fake sounds in that, you know, makes the, uh, raises the dramatic tension and that sort of thing.
1: (laughs) So uh, I kind of want to dig around a little bit of your work, too, so that, you know, we're not talking too much about the film side. We can really get into like your research itself. Um, so I know that Alaska has been one of your like main spots for things, and I'd like to kind of be able to touch base on all of your like main areas that you've gone to, um, that you've done a lot of research in. But uh, kind of starting off with Alaska, uh, what kind of things did you experience in Alaska? What did you do in Alaska? And uh, I guess what what exactly could you have possibly seen in Alaska?
0: Yeah, so that's probably our most, at least for my series, for Bigfoot on the Trail, and even for Small Town Monsters, I mean, we, we put out a number of films regarding Alaska. We took a trip up there last May of 2022, and uh, it was very interesting, uh, how it kind of all stemmed as we'd been planning to sort of do an Alaska thing at some point that I mean, we knew we wanted to go up there. I've been wanting to go up there for years, but so when unch- uh, in- such
1: uncharted land, you never know what could be out there. You look at like the, uh, what's yeah. the demographics for specific regions that people live and they actually oh, have like zero no one, that there's like a 200 mile radius where there's zero one people that live there.
0: <laughs> Put it this way. Alaska has a population of about over 700,000 people. Uh, which is just a little bit more than the state of Vermont, which has about 500-something thousand people. And you could probably fit Vermont in. I mean, I'm not going to guess the actual number, but 30, 40 times over. I mean, it's that big of a place, Alaska. And there's actually more caribou population than there are human beings in Alaska. And they're all kind of distributed in in the Anchorage area, a little bit south of there and north of there towards Fairbanks. And most of it is uncharted. You've got the capital of Alaska being Juneau, which is down in a coastal area that you can only get to by plane or boat, I mean, you physically cannot drive there. Absolutely wild. Uh, so it's, it's just a different kind of place, but in April, actually it was either in April or May of 2021, I I received an email from a guy who lived up in Alaska, serious professional background had told me basically, um, he was originally from the new England region. So that's I think how he kind of wanted to reach out to me and had seen some of my videos or something like that. Um, I had a podcast at the time, kind of a YouTube live stream show. And he had said, I have this remote property that I built a few years ago out in the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. It's a remote location. It's over an hour boat ride to get there. And ever since we've been there, we've had a lot of strange stuff happen. Rocks getting thrown physically, you know, witnessing rocks being tossed into the water, uh, strange noises, howls, whoops, whistles, a lot of this really weird stuff. And he wasn't really a Bigfoot believer. He had built this place as a fishing kind of retreat, just a place to get away, get off the grid, kind of dream Alaska cabin sort of place that you wouldn't live at, but someplace you could go to on a weekend or something like that with your buddies and go fish and just get away from, you know, the rest of uh, the rest of the world, I suppose. And they had all this weird stuff happening. It was very intriguing. and I got to listen to a lot of the audio and stuff that he had recorded and, the story was just interesting, and I got to know him pretty well, uh, seemed very trustworthy, serious professional background, um, former military, just not many red flags from what I could tell. So it wasn't actually till a full year later that we went out there. So it was from, you know, spring, late spring of 2021 and then May of 2022 that we actually went out there. And we spent nine days at this location that's codenamed Area A kind of they call it area ape is sort of the, uh, (laughs) the moniker, you know, everyone likes to have their areas in, in the Bigfoot world. Um, But uh, area A, sometimes we just call it the cabin, the Alaska cabin, uh, just because it's just kind of rolls off the tongue easier than saying specifically the Kenai Peninsula cabin, you know, something like that. But we spent nine days out there and we got to really explore the land. Uh, And there was, I mean, there's only six of us there at one point. Uh, You're in such an isolated location where you don't have, any kind of service. I mean, you, you you're lucky to get a you're lucky to get a satellite phone connection. You actually have you have to go stand out kind of in a more open area to get sat phone connection to reach the outside world. Very interesting location and the amount of wildlife that resides in that area. You've got brown bear, black bear, moose, uh, Sitka deer. Oh gosh, mountain goats, a lynx. What what am I missing? Uh, they're just on land. I mean, you've got all these animals on land. Then in the ocean, you have, and we literally had humpback whales breaching in the bay right near the cabin. We had orcas. <laughs> we saw orcas. We had sea lions, seals frolicking around. <laughs> it's it's like an Alaska wilderness paradise in terms of wildlife. And then you have the stories of this Sasquatch-like creature. So a lot of stuff they've had happen in the cabin was just intriguing. But we, like I said, we spent nine days out there. So we got to... Um, do a lot of interesting stuff i mean that's that's documented in uh our documentary series the alaskan coastal sasquatch which is part of the bigfoot beyond the trail so there's part one and part two of the alaskan coastal sasquatch uh, which they're both like an hour and a half long taking place you know basically our, our trip to that cabin and then some of the backstory with some of the encounters that have happened to the folks going there for a few years and um and then uh, the, the film called On the Trail, Bigfoot, The Last Frontier by Seth, Seth Breedlove, is a more holistic kind of look at the whole Bigfoot topic in Alaska. So it's got a lot of interviews with First Nations, Native American perspective, uh, Alaskan hunters, locals, natives, people who hunt who have had encounters with Sasquatches up there. Uh, from the coastal areas all the way up until like Den- Denali National Park in the interior, that sort of thing. And uh, it touches also upon our kind of area. So we do this thing where we like to have a film that comes out on Amazon and some of the streaming platforms for the, on the trail of Bigfoot series that'll also then have an accompanying documentary series. That's part of the Bigfoot beyond the trail series. So uh, we, the first time we did this was with on the trail of Bigfoot, the discovery, which was about the Olympic, uh the olympic project a research group in washington state that that has found these alleged ground nests in an area with a history of sasquatch sightings and activity and that sort of thing these really fascinating ground nests so we had the film about that and then we did a separate youtube uh documentary about it with the big beyond the trail series so basically how that works is you can watch either one of those independently but if you watch both of them you're going to get Two different styles of film. One is a more kind of boots on the ground. We're taking you physically to the spot. Whereas the other larger film will be interviews with everyone involved, history about the area, that sort of thing. So if you watch them both together, it'll complement very well. So we did the same thing. We usually do these as year, uh, end of the year releases. So we did the same thing with this Alaska thing. So if you watch On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Last Frontier, you're going to learn probably more about Alaska Sasquatch stories than I think has ever been covered before. And it touches upon this area, a place that we were in. So let's say you watch that first. Well, then you can hop over to YouTube and watch our part one and part two, which is a deep dive into that specific case. But if you watch the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch first, and then you jump over to the other one, it's just going to kind of expand your knowledge base about what you learned through that first of those first two films. So they kind of coexist in the same space. They complement each other. Like I said, they can be separate but also uh, better viewed in conjunction, I feel. So, um, So yeah, we really covered Alaska, I think, as much as we could. And we did another Bigfoot Beyond the Trail video for more interior Alaska as well. So we did a lot about, um, about the Alaska stuff.
1: So uh, kind of going back to your research in Alaska, um, what kind of evidence did you guys end up finding yourselves in Alaska? And two, I o- I'm always interested, of course, in uh, the natives folklore built around things. Uh, what's kind of like the the natives interpretation of like the Sasquatch in that area?
0: Okay. So <laughs> I'll answer your first question. So in terms of evidence, there's nothing I can say conclusively. We found that with Sasquatch, or any kind of footage or anything like that as much as I would have loved to. right? Um, but at, at, on location at this cabin, which just has a long history of stuff happening. So as I mentioned, there's been a lot of things that have gone on there, um, possible sightings, uh, including one encounter where a guy was using the outhouse and was in the bathroom and felt like something was watching him. A very uncomfortable feeling. He gets out and he has you know something large with kind of glowing eyes kind of looking at him. He stumbles and trips and then it's eight feet. It's moved eight feet away and is kind of paralleling him large hulking figure. And then just lots of other typical, when I say typical kind of Sasquatch reported behavior, wood knocks. So what sounds like wood being hit against uh, sticks or anything like that, or trees, hollow baseball bat type sound of whoops, whistles, hearing like, distinctly human whistles, getting stuff thrown rocks I mean, one of the first encounters that happened with uh, Scott, the property owner, was when he had bought this parcel of land, they were going out there to clear uh, clear the area where they were going to put the cabin. So they were having to cut the trees and do all this sort of stuff. And, you know, hearing what they described as sounding like a T-Rex roaring, but the sound, you know, was coming closer to them, which is very unusual for an animal to come closer to human activity with chainsaws and uh, wood splitters and that sort of thing. Animals usually would go away from something like that. And, and they witnessed a, a football sized rock basically flying horizontally from the tree line into the water. That was one of the more startling incidents, hearing whistles and that sort of thing. there's a long history and I could get into that. I mean, that, that would be a long conversation to itself. <laughs> but what we found there was um, our, our kind of approach our first few days was to just take it easy, maybe acclimate. Basically what they were saying was every trip they would go out there, their first two seasons there, they would have something happen. Something would be thrown or somebody would hear a noise. Someone would go out four in the morning to, to, uh, you know, urinate off the the porch and they, a rock would fly past them or something like that. Uh, And it had kind of slowed down in the third summer. And I believe this was the, this, when we went, was the fourth season going out there. So what I should say about this cabin is you can't get out there all the time. Um, It's usually the season is from maybe kind of April to possibly early October because the seas get pretty rough for the rest of the year because it is over an hour boat ride from the nearest small town from a port. This, I mean, you have to go th- traverse around these giant mountains and peninsulas and it's, it's a dangerous kind of endeavor into itself because you're in an area that's extremely remote with uh, very crazy conditions that can easily kill you and animals that can easily kill you as well. I mean, talking about brown bears and moose especially. So not easy to get out there, but, uh, this was the fourth season and we were kind of one of the second or third trips of the season because it was May. They just sort of opened the cabin up. Some of the snow had been melting. It was still pretty much untouched when we were there. So we'd taken it easy for the first few days, but, uh, we would hear stuff at night. I mean, one of the nights we were up by the fire pit, there's an upper fire pit that's above the cabin kind of in the woods in these, in this area is a, um, it's a temperate rainforest, so it's it's the same kind of temperate rainforest that stretch from basically coastal Alaska there on the Kenai Peninsula down to northern California to the Redwoods and everything in between. So you have Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, those places that are the most kind of well-known for Sasquatch reports in the world, where the terms Sasquatch and Bigfoot originated from. You have Sasquatch in British Columbia, and Bigfoot came from northern California and those mountains near where the patterson gimlin film was taken. So it's the same type of habitat that this cabin is in. It's a coastal rainforest. So you have these, everything's covered in moss. You can move very quietly through the woods. It's very green stays pretty mild year round. It never gets extremely hot there or extremely cold. There's a lot of precipitation. And then you have the ocean right there. So you have so many different food sources. You've got terrestrial stuff and then aquatic sources, sea, uh, starfish washing up on shore, clams, all kinds of stuff that really are nutrient dense, tons of giant fish in the area that the salmon runs, the halibut runs, there are incredible. So you have so much there. And um, just being able to witness all that was incredible and seeing how much wildlife is there. It's, I mean, it's like, as a human, you're basically the invader there. You are kind of the odd one out. It's, it's totally wild. It's not very human controlled. So if there were a place for something like a Sasquatch to exist, I mean, this would be a perfect location. You have people that come in maybe once or twice a month during like a six-month time period, not the whole year round. You're pretty much untouched. And when people are there, they're completely out of their element. And most of the guys, when they go out there, they're they're trying to go fishing or just kind of hang out and you know get away from work or whatever else is going on. So they're not really looking to do research. So we were kind of some of the first to really – try some of this stuff and, and we went and slept up on the ridge behind the cabin and we'd heard stuff kind of running around and wood knocks and things. But uh, one of the more interesting things we found was this handprint on the backside of the cabin that uh, was clearly a handprint. So what that means is that's 50-50 chance it is 100% either going to be a human being or something human-like. You know, is it possibly a human handprint? Sure, maybe it is. But it's not like it's a bear print or a moose print that's misidentified on the backside of a cabin where you have clearly five digits in a palm and dermatoglyphics, which are things that only primates have, which are the, if you look at your fingers, you'll see the squiggles on your hands. That's, those are dermal, dermal ridges, dermatoglyphics. That's like, if you look at a chimp's hand or a gorilla's hands, orangutan, they have the same thing, uh, primates. So bears don't have that moose don't have that. So that handprint was really interesting because of where it was positioned. It was really awkward. It wasn't particularly large. I mean, it was just a little bit larger than maybe my hand or some of the guys that were there. It's like, I think it was eight inches from sort of the, um, the, the palm area to the tip of one of the fingers, but the finger placement was strange and the way it was positioned was very awkward for a human. It was, I mean, almost at, you know, I'm almost six foot and it was about you know almost eye level from where we were at off of the ground because this cabin was kind of on sort of on stilts. So it's, and it's the metal siding that it was on. And it's basically, it was this, you know, oily whitish print just on the side of the cabin, which is really interesting because there's been other reports of Sasquatch handprints and things found face prints on glass. Um, and there's been theories that have come up with that's maybe the, the oil in the skin. So humans also have this and other primates do, um, that, uh, maybe there's more activity or the more active kind of oil in the skin found in these things. I don't know. Um, but either way, it was really weird finding that. Uh, I just kind of happened to, I, I was walking behind the cabin. I happened to see that there. And I just sort of was like, okay, this is weird. It just looks strange. I mean, but can I claim it Sasquatch? Absolutely not. And I won't, I will not make that claim unless you're able to substantiate it. We actually then we didn't have the proper equipment to document that. Fortunately, I didn't have any swabs or anything to collect the DNA samples. So it was only about a week and a half later that uh, we had a friend of ours go out there with the property owner who's, who's been there quite a few times, Larry Beans Baxter, who's a former police officer up in Alaska and does Alaska Bigfoot research. He took out some of his equipment, including you know swabs and stuff that he would use. Like if he was documenting a crime scene and he's got to get a handprint off of this building he that's the way he approached it so he took swabs of each of the fingers and uh, set those up in little tubes and then also used this kind of plastic sticky stuff that you put onto the you dust you dust the print and you put this sort of it's almost like a big sheet of tape and you would then rip off that and it's it kind of lifts the print it captures it and we have had those samples in with a researcher and we're hoping to get those tested at some point we didn't get them tested in time for the documentary unfortunately but um Hopefully at some point that can tell us a little more about maybe what what that was. Again, I can't say what it was 100%, but that was definitely intriguing. Uh, just a lot of the other stuff was weird audio things that were just kind of hard to explain. As I mentioned, there was a you know one night we were just kind of hanging out by this upper fire pit and we would go hang out and just do a fire at night and just kind of hang out for a little bit. And uh, we're just kind of goofing off, whatever, doing our thing. No one's really filming. And all of a sudden we just start hearing... It sounds like a clear wood knock just break through the break through our kind of noise and and our calamity. And we're all like, Oh, shh!" I think I just heard that. And then we start hearing what sounds like rocks being thrown from the top of this hill, crashing into stuff along the way and and falling into the water distinctly hearing the splashes. uh, But it wasn't just like, you'd hear just a splash in the water. That could be a fish or a sea lion or something like that. You would hear Uh, trees or limbs being hit by something. And then what clearly sounded like a rock crashing against the beach and then splashing into the water. Uh, And I mean, it was just, it was unusual that happened a few times and there was these wood knock noises that kind of happened in between very clearly. And we're all kind of just, befuddled and everyone's you know, grabbing their thermal units and cameras, trying to scan and see what's going on. But such a thick rainforesty kind of environment, tough to see much through those um, through the trees. But and we didn't see anything of note, so it was kind of weird. And the only way we could replicate it, I mean, it was a hill up there, so somebody could argue, well, maybe it just roll down the hill, right? It was just coincidental timing. Well, actually, traversing this ridge, I mean, it's all covered in moss, very few rocks at all. We couldn't find any rocks other than the ones that are down on the beach by the ocean. So we actually used some of the rocks that we were using for the firing uh, to emulate this. And what we would do is we would take a big, you know, maybe a um, like a cantaloupe sized rock and just try to throw it down the hill towards the ocean. And they would basically get, get caught in moss and uh, branches and stuff on the way. And it just would stop making sound. So, I mean, when we tried physically just, okay, let's try throwing a little bit, you know, not just rolling it, because that was the idea was let's, let's just roll a rock down, see if that does the same thing, you know, arguing, okay, maybe a rock rolled off the hill, it just rolled into the water. Um, and I mean, it's a, it's a hill, but it's not as steep as you'd imagine. And again, stuff gets caught. So actually, the only way we could match the sound was physically throwing a rock out further and then having it hit the shoreline, which is covered with rocks, from which point it then bounces off of the rocks into the water and splashes. That's like the closest sound we could get to match what we had heard. And we had recorded on audio and a couple of the nights, other nights with audio, we would have overnight audio recording a lot at this location. And we would hear like once or twice a night, you would hear maybe three or four times. what sounds like this rock smashing noise splashes and that's it. You wouldn't hear it again the rest of the night. It was like always kind of like a, Weird thing that would happen a few nights in a row. So I don't know what exactly was going on, but it was just a weird sequence of events. Uh, Another one we had was a mystery gunshot that we heard multiple times where it just sounds like a gunshot is coming from somewhere in the woods, but there's nobody else out there. I mean, you would know you'd see boats coming into this bay, uh, extremely remote location. So
1: do you think that was a, uh, like an actual, like, like a mimic possibly from like their mouth or do you think it was maybe them like almost doing like a tree knock or like hitting like maybe like a rock on a tree or something? I but mean, with such impact that it almost sounds like a gunshot because of the strength of the, the crack of the rock on the tree possibly.
0: Yeah. I would lean towards probably kind of imitate or not imitating, but doing some sort of a knock or something like that. I mean, I, we, there was a glacier that was, phew, maybe 10, 15 miles away. And I've had people tell me, well, what if it was just glacial rocks cracking? I mean, or glacier cracking. I mean, uh, yeah, but it was so far away. I don't think we'd be able to hear that. I mean, I I don't know, maybe I could be wrong. We we thought, okay, maybe avalanche, but we didn't hear any other avalanches. And what was so weird about the twice that it happened was our our second day on location, we went across, uh, basically where the cabin was located, there's a bay. And uh, it's a pretty long bay. So what we did was um, four of us were going out there. So the property owner and his friend took us out on their boat, drove us about three quarters of the way to the other side of the bay, which looks deceptively close in the videos, very far. If you were to walk the shoreline, it would take you quite a while. So he would. they took us in the bigger boat and then we deployed into like a Zodiac, which is like a smaller kind of rowboat dinghy kind of thing. Loaded into that, went to the other side of the bay. They went back. We explored because we were looking for these old abandoned cabins because there's a couple of cabins out there. There actually used to be a settlement there over 100 years ago. Uh, all along of Alaska, there were settlements, towns that were there because of uh, people living off the land. There was communities, people that were fishermen and loggers, that sort of thing. That, that was big industry. I mean, even uh, prior to Alaska becoming part of the U.S., uh, that was territory of Russia, a long history of Russian fishing settlements all up and down the, the rainforest coasts of, of Alaska. So, um, you know, not, not unheard of for there to be towns there. Supposedly there was a town in this location that had uh, died off like the Port Chatham famous uh, kind of Bigfoot murder thing on the Kenai Peninsula as well in Alaska. Uh, that town pretty much went extinct because of economic reasons, you know, just because as, as ga- natural gas, oil, and that sort of thing in Alaska were coming up in the, in the forties and the fifties and sixties and Alaska started making a lot of that money. People were like, man, life is really tough living in this remote location, just logging and fishing for a living. Let's go live in Anchorage and we do oil rig work or whatever or, or you know, oil oil drilling up in the the Arctic. So these towns just went extinct. So we're out there, uh, my rambling, I'll get back to the, the original story about the mystery gunshot. So we're out looking for these cabins and we spent like all day out there exploring. The snow is still pretty thick on that side because it was sort of in the shadow of a mountain. So it didn't melt as much as the snow did behind the cabin where we could walk pretty much much of the hill. And uh, we're out there and we, we were getting back and we see that as we're getting out to the shoreline to get back to our boat, uh, the, the main boat is already kind of headed towards us. And we're like, Oh, we didn't even radio them to come pick us up. And, you know, we're getting ready and we get back on the boat and they're like, Hey, which one of you guys shot a gun? And we were like, none of us shot a gun. You know, what do you mean? And they said, Oh, we thought you guys were maybe in trouble or you saw a bear and you shot a gun. And that's why we came out to get you with that guys requesting us, you know, come get us. And we're like, okay, that's kind of weird. We didn't. So, you know, one of the guys had heard it, the property owner was sleeping at the time. The other one was sleeping with a window open and he heard this gunshot. That's why they came to get us. We just, okay, we thought it was weird, you know, whatever. And then the other time it happened, I actually heard it. So it was, I think our second, second to last day or, or towards the end of the trip. So again, like we were there for almost nine days and it was maybe the seventh or eighth day. And, uh, it was, it was an overcast kind of day. It was very foggy, super creepy. We had very nice weather that the most, for the most part, very sunny, um, and just nice. But this was the one day where it was kind of sort of rainy, sort of spooky overcast. And um, I had been going out. We'd all been kind of taking a nap in the afternoon. you got to realize Alaska, I mean, it doesn't get dark until almost midnight up there. This was still early. So it wasn't where you get those 22 hours of daylight like you would in June or July or into the summer months. But it was still, you know, we'd have light for quite a while. So you have longer days. So, you know, we're exploring, doing whatever most of the day and then we were all taking a nap. And I decided to step outside after waking up from a nap to just, just go get some B-roll, film some shots of the fog-covered mountains. And just it looked super cool. It re- looked really awesome. And I noticed it looked like a sea lion splashing in the bay. And we've been seeing dozens of them. I mean, we filmed them with our drones. But I decided to just have my camera on a tripod. And I'm filming this, like, wake in the water because I thought, okay, there's a sea lion. all of a sudden, and this was, like, maybe a minute or two after me getting out of the cabin, I hear this, which just sounds like a poof, just a gunshot. And I can't tell from what direction it is because it's a bay. It's almost like an amphitheater. You just got, you've got these you know, 2000 foot mountains basically around you on either side. So sound travels really weird. There's a huge echo factor. So I don't know what direction that sound came from, but I heard this gunshot and I'm like, that's very strange. And I go inside and the same guy who heard the gunshot the first day, it was, it was, it was, basically his room is up on the second floor in the cabin with the window open always has the window open because he goes out there and that's how he hears stuff. He comes out and he's like, did you hear that? I said, yeah, I heard what sounded like a gunshot. He said, well, there were two more as you were walking in because I wouldn't have heard it as I was walking in, opening the door or whatever. And it was just weird. Um, I don't know how to explain it again. There shouldn't be anyone else shooting out there. We would know. Uh, it would be pretty obvious, uh, but what was so weird was both times we heard those on that trip it was when something was going on. So the first time they heard it was basically right when we were getting out of the woods. When they came to get us with the boat, that guy, essentially, they heard the gunshot and they came out to he came out to the balcony. He could see us from across the bay and we, were, we had just got out of the tree line. We were just getting ready uh, and we had spent a while in the, in the on the shoreline. there, kind of hanging out. Um, because we were going to go hike into a different area and that's when they decided to come get us. So it was, the timing was weird. And that second time it was right when I had stepped outside of the cabin after no one had been out for maybe three, four hours, cause we were all like passed out. It was like 7 PM or something. So we had basically eaten a big lunch or something and gone to sleep for a few hours and everyone was just siesta mode and we'd walk out there and that's, I walked out there and that's when I heard that. So it's a definitive of anything not really, but uh, according to Scott and some of the guys who have been out there, they hear that kind of stuff a lot out there. They call it kind of the hollow baseball bat sound. I call it the mystery gunshot because to me it sounded most like a gunshot. But uh, when you actually break down the audio, like a spectrogram analysis, like I, we had David Ellis of the Olympic Project, who I think knows more about alleged Sasquatch audio than probably anybody out there just by sheer amount that he's looked into it and and researched it. When you look at spectrogram analysis, essentially you're looking at the way audio signatures look. So you can learn how to identify certain animals by the Hertz level and the signatures that they can give off. Um, and when you look at this mystery gunshot, so what actually happens when you take like a regular gunshot sound you try to break it down, you'll notice there's actually two distinct sounds. So there's the initial boom and there's the after kind of shock. To our human ears, that just sounds like one sound put together. You know, the the just the one sound. Yeah, it's just the one sound. You Because it's such a, it happens in a you know s- split second, even less than a second, that entire noise is over. But when you break it down, you're able to look at it with a computer and you're able to break it down milliseconds, even, even shorter than that. You can see there's actually two distinct sounds. But when you look at the mystery gunshot sounds, there's only one signature, just a percussive sound. That's it which means that it's not a gunshot. So it is, it is not, we at least know it's not a gunshot and what it is, we don't know, but uh, the timing stuff is weird. So, um, you know, those, that was like a hyper-focus I guess on, on some of the stuff we had happened out there. We had some other kind of minor stuff, but um, the handprint was interesting. Actually that mystery gunshot was the same day as I found that handprint. It was like right before then, that, Cause that's when gunshot happened, we all kind of were active and, and I actually took a, took a walk behind the cabin to switch a batter and an audio recorder. And then I happened to stroll by and look at the metal siding. And I saw that handprint. It was the only one anywhere on the cabin. And, um, so it was the same day. I mean, I'm not saying it happened then, but that handprint had to have been relatively fresh from that season. I don't think something would have been able to last that long out there from the last season. If it was any of the guys doing any work back there or something just really weird. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's one of the most fascinating cases I got to work on, but, um, I do remember your second question. I want to get to that about the Native American side of things.
1: Oh, I just want uh, to make a quick theory real quick before we get to that part. Go, go ahead, yeah. So uh, as far as um, like the gunshot sound, just just kind of th- something that I'm kind, kind of rationalizing as you're kind of telling the story. So when it seems to go back to a lot of like the, the local stuff, as far as like Sasquatch goes, you have like a lot of the ghost towns because it seemed like they would like attack people or take people and then people would get pissed off and then they kind of go after them into the woods with guns and things. And that seemed to be like the kind of the regular as far as like Alaskan Sasquatch goes. So assumably they kind of like their isolation because of their experiences with humans in the past, as far as like them trying to run them back out. So my kind of question is too, is if they're somewhat intelligent beings, if they know that that sound is a scary sound, because that's the sound that you know a gun makes when it's coming after them i almost wonder if they're trying to get people out of an area if they try to mimic a gun sound as best as they can thinking that it instills the same fear on a human as it would on them being shot at
0: but yeah it's interesting i i, I don't know what to make of it because i mean there's actually even some evidence that predators and certain scavengers will not be scared of gunshots that actually mountain lions and wolves and that sort of thing upon hearing gunshots will actually be attracted to that area because it means that something was recently killed by a human. So animals can adapt their behavior. Uh, when it comes to the mystery gunshot there, I mean, for years, people have told stories in Sasquatch-related stories of hearing wood knocks. I've heard wood knocks in other areas. Um, I don't know what they are. If it's a, com- it, a lot of people think it's maybe a communicative thing. Out there, it seems to happen a lot. It seems like whatever's out there is not too afraid of co- throwing stuff at people, kind of being mischievous. They've had stuff go missing. They've had like a hatchet that went missing at one point. And, um, Might be curiosity
1: that- out of not having a lot, a lot of human interaction. Cause they're only seeing humans here and there. So when they do come, I'm sure they're extremely curious as to what they are and what, what the humans intentions are in that area.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like when the cabin was being constructed, uh, it seems like the first, uh, you know, two years of the cabin, when it was being built, there was a lot of, um, you know, aggressive kind of stuff. And maybe that was because, you know, these people had, there hadn't been people living there in quite a long time. I mean, that bay you get occasionally, maybe some people that come in with their boats for the day and do fishing and that sort of stuff. But I mean, the week we were out there, we didn't see anybody else. Uh, but you know, there's tons of little bays and inlets all across this Kenai Peninsula. I mean, if you look at it on Google earth, crazy. I mean, it's just mountains and, and little inlets and bays and it's just absolutely wild. Uh, so the chances of people coming in there are not that often, but then somebody builds like a actual residence or something. A lot of the behavior seemed kind of aggressive, maybe like a "we don't want you here" kind of thing. Infringing on territory. Su- yeah, nothing super aggressive. No, no killings, or anything like that. I mean, a lot of that killer bigfoot stuff with Alaska. I personally don't put a lot of stock into. I think it's a little bit sensationalized, especially when TV gets involved. There was a certain show about that topic that. uh, I mean, anyone that watched it could tell wasn't very truthful. Uh, it was pretty staged. But, uh, you know, the truth is always kind of more in the middle, whereas a lot of those communities went extinct because of economic reasons. As I mentioned, the the industries they were in just didn't seem wise. Um, does that mean there weren't Sasquatch sightings going on? No. I mean, the people that live in that area, the Tlingit people and other natives, they have centuries of, of history with the, the hairy man or the... Um, just the creatures, the kind of names that they have for these sorts of things, the Nantinak, Kushtaka, all this sort of stuff, all up and down that whole Pacific Northwest and into Alaska area. But um, yeah, the, the wood knocking stuff, the communicative thing, yeah, maybe it is. I mean, it was just weird that it happened when, when we were doing something. You know, somebody was either coming out of the cabin or coming out of the woods, and that's when these sounds would happen. And the property owner would mention that they would hear that thing first few years almost every time within. Like an hour of arriving on location, they would hear what sounds like a hollow baseball bat noise come from the hill above them. Um, That's sort of one of the things that they were described. So, is it is it just a communicative thing? I mean, possibly. I don't know. But um,
1: I mean, if there's a tribe of them too, it may even be them trying to just kind of let the others in the tribe or the other Sasquatch in the area know that there are humans like in the area. Possibly, it might just be a communication as to like you know, just letting them, letting the other ones know that you're, you're in the area to know to kind of stay farther back away possibly, but somebody has to be the scout, of course, and get kind of close to be able to know that you guys are there.
0: Right. It could, it could be. I mean, I've heard wood knocks in other areas where we would hear one from one area and then another and another. So it's almost like a one, two kind of thing or multiple knocks or whatever. I mean, it's, there's been sightings and I've, I've done research on how many there's been like 20 or so sightings I've come across from various databases across north america where people saw a sasquatch and heard wood knocks associated with the sighting either before or after so it's not completely far-fetched there's also one sighting i'm aware of where a guy actually witnessed what he thought was a man with a ghillie suit smashing a tree against a a, a large tree like a branch against a tree making this wood knock noise and when getting close to realize it was this ape-like creature, that was a sighting in the Ocala National Forest in Florida. So we, we at least have some an- anecdotal evidence to suggest that these things use this communication or make these kinds of noises. I've even heard people theorize that maybe it's done with hand clapping, like in an area like the Pacific Northwest, where you have a lot of rotting and, and wet mossy trees. You know, how do you get something that sounds like a perfect knock noise? Well, do a, a loud hand clap. Gorillas can do these weird tooth pops or these chest thumps that sound like of uh, much different than anything you'd expect. Um,
1: I've even heard a so series about them just slapping their palm on a tree and it kind of shows yeah, the I've strength of it possibly too. If they're able to smack their hand that hard on a tree, that um, <laughs> just shows how strong those things really are.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, you got to realize whatever these things are, they would have to be many times, many degrees stronger than a human being. And that's not just like a total shot in the dark guess. I mean, chimpanzees, which are, on average, a lot smaller than even like the the average adult human male in size. I mean, they're only three four feet tall, but they're five six times the strength of an adult man. I mean, chimps are extremely can be extremely aggressive and could basically rip your arm straight out of its socket if they wanted to, right? And, gor- and gorillas, which are obviously lar- can be larger than humans, the, the brute strength they have. I mean, they could take on six adult males easily and win. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's that's the real animals that we know about. So I'm not saying Sasquatch is a gorilla or an ape, but if you look or you know, it's not like one of these apes that we know of is not identical to an orangutan or gorilla. But if we use that kind of example, whereas humans, you know, you know, you can have a pretty strong man, but, uh, or, you know, example of a human being, bodybuilders, whatever, that are extremely overpowered, but they're not, they're still not going to be anything compared to an ape that just has this raw kind of strength because they live in these environments. So the descriptions of the size of Sasquatch, six to eight feet tall, you know, maybe weighing from 500 to 800 pounds plus that would, that would be a lot of force and a lot of pressure. So imagine something like that, being able to clap. I mean, you, there's people that can do some real crazy loud hand claps. Imagine something with a lot more strength, being able to do that. It just be amplified. That's why a lot of people say with the, the audio as well, the, 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 the howls and the vocals that they hear just sound so much louder because you imagine something like that, the kind of lung capacity it would have. I mean, howler monkeys, which are relatively small, uh, can produce a very loud sound. If you've ever heard it, like in a zoo or anything, it's, it can be very disturbing actually. It's just, Oh, it's so deep and guttural. So imagine something Sasquatch like, so a lot of the audio they have from out there. I mean, it sounds like this insane howling noise these weird kind of mumbling, almost talking sounds. But the weirdest one by far is the baby crying noise uh, that's been recorded there on that property. And and I'll I'll get into that now and I'll segue that into the Native American thing because it's kind of one of the interesting things that we sort of had happen while we were there in terms of correlating. So one of the intriguing pieces of audio that the cabin uh, owner had originally sent me was this baby crying sound. So it was a folder with like a bunch of different sounds. You had thumps against the cabin, you know, what sounded like a, you know, ape kind of, oh, 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 kind of weird noises, lots of different sounds. But then there was a sound called baby crying. And I listened to it and it sounds like a baby crying. I mean, it's very weird. I've tried to match it up to audio of maybe foxes, uh, rac- or not raccoons, porcupines, sea otters, otters. I've had lots of suggestions, foxes, which actually don't live in this part of the Kenai Peninsula. Uh, for whatever reason, they're just not there. I haven't been able to make a perfect match. Does it mean that it's Sasquatch? No, but here's the backstory. So they've heard that you know, most of the time people go out there, it's usually the cabin owner and his friends, ex-military buddies, whatever, mostly dudes, right? Uh, they they don't bring their wives out there all that often. I mean, it's kind of a place they try to get, get away from that kind of thing. But two of the occasions they've had women out there in some of the, in the first kind of first few seasons out there, one of them, they heard what sounded like uh, they would keep a journal. He would keep a journal of weird occurrences. Cause he said every trip they'd go out there, they'd at least get knocks or a whoop or rocks thrown or something like that. And one of them, they had, he had a journal entry of, you know, we'd heard baby crying noises, while loading stuff into the dock, kind of weird. It made a note of that. And it talked to another researcher, another Sasquatch researcher at the time. And this person basically flat out asked him, well, did you have any women there on the, on the property at the time? And he was able to find out that, uh, yes, his wife and you know, some friend was there at the cabin with them that time when they heard the baby crying. He said, OK, it's weird. Well, then another time they were out there, this was at the point where the property owner had been starting to record audio based on advice from Sasquatch researchers saying, start recording some of the stuff that you guys are hearing. And that's where a lot of this audio that I heard came from uh, it was just they record all the time. So another trip, his wife had gone out there and one of her friends, and they were both out in the woods. One was berry picking, the other one was using the outhouse. And they apparently independently heard this baby crying sound. They get back, they initially didn't want to tell the property owner, but they they kind of couldn't hold couldn't hold it and basically told each other and then told him. And he said, Well, if you guys got that, that means I I would have recorded if you guys heard that, I would have recorded it because my recorder's out there. And lo and behold, they have that recording, which is amazing. Um and it's just weird because they've been out there a lot. We we spent When we were out there, we spent the longest continuous trip out there, almost nine days. I mean, most people go out there, maybe four days would be a long stretch for them, you know, long weekend kind of thing. Um, but all the times people have been out there, no one else has heard this baby crying sound really ever. Uh, which to me, it's like with the mystery gunshot sounds, it's kind of like stretching the coincidences. I don't want to lead people on with this, but I also want to say, okay, well... I would expect if it is some other animal over the course of like a four-year period that you'd at least hear it maybe another time, another season. Why is it specifically only when women have been around? I mean, that is just kind of weird. And then that connects very interestingly into the native stories because the natives in that area, the Tlingit people and other groups in coastal Alaska have folklore going back centuries of, you know, the hairy man, that sort of thing. But they have something called the Kushtaka, which is sort of described as the, it's like a man otter creature, but the descriptions are interesting because they kind of vary, but the ones that most of the descriptions is basically, it's like a hairy man like creature that's seen swimming between channels. You know, in a lot of these areas, there's islands and they're right off the coast and you have animals that swim between these channels. So you have, you have people, you'll see moose and bear and deer all these animals elk even just swimming between channels all up and down British Columbia and into coastal Southeast Alaska. So there's been sightings of Sasquatches seen swimming between islands and bays and that sort of thing. All the other animals do it, you know, why wouldn't something like a Sasquatch do it too, right? But these native stories of the Kushtaka, they describe this hairy man-like creature that swims. But the interesting part about that is it, it lets out this, what sounds like a baby crying noise in the woods to lure women and children in. So goes the folklore. So they would kind of warn, I mean, it's possibly it's like a boogeyman story where they warn the, uh, the, the children and the women to not go off into the woods and get killed by wolves or uh, a brown bear or something like that. You don't go in or the Kushtaka. If You hear that baby crying sound, go away from it. So what's really weird is that this property that has been recorded there, but there's no really connection to any of the native peoples there. I mean, this is just a, a property that was bought by somebody and built and this kind of thing is being observed there. So while we were out at the cabin, Seth Breedlove and the rest of the Small Town Monsters crew were doing the On the Trail of Bigfoot, the last frontier film. And they had interviewed a number of Native Americans in, in Alaska. And like two of the people they had talked to had described this being part of the folklore of, if you hear the baby crying noise in the woods, that's you know a warning to women and children. That's kind of the Kushtaka or whatever, the way they kind of explained it. With in regards to their culture, so it's really interesting that simultaneously this stuff is going on at a remote property, as you have these stories being told through these cultures, and it's it, it's just it's weird. I mean, again, it's another one of those things that it's an interesting coincidence. I mean, I'd love to find some audio that matches that baby crying to say, well, it's definitely not anything unusual, but I haven't been able to do that so far. So um, maybe maybe somebody can do that. I don't know, but. Uh, It's really intriguing. So when we were out there, we didn't have any women with us. So we didn't hear anything like that, but we we are planning to go back there and we're definitely going to experiment with that specifically.
1: Say even in that connection, uh, bringing it kind of to like a scientific side of it, I I forgot the woman's name off the top of my head, but uh, she was doing DNA testing for Sasquatch and was realizing that it was uh, female human DNA with an unknown male DNA. So with that... um, Theoretically, I mean, Sasquatch could purposely do like a baby knowing mimic sound in order to lure women into the woods, uh, knowing that they could like breed with them possibly. And maybe that's kind of where that connection comes in and everything kind of comes full circle on that, is that they intentionally make a sound that they know that the average woman would run into the woods going to check on, you know, if they hear a baby crying, and then that's where they would try to breed with them. I mean, there's even even some folklore about uh, Sasquatch breeding with women too, but just going into the actual DNA of it... Um, there is like the the woman human w- woman's DNA incorporated with Sasquatch DNA at least from the research that I've kind of dug into on it.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think what you're probably referring to is the Melba Ketchum DNA study. Yep. Um, and um, I, I I personally don't put a lot of stock into that because of the the sort of the backstory is a little bit is kind of muddled and there was a lot that was done wrong there scientifically from folks that I've talked to that are involved in that. And lots of science Sasquatch researchers gave some samples for that. And the way it was kind of treated was um, I think irresponsible in some ways. There was the, the conclusion of the male, you know, unknown male creature with human fem- female genome was kind of dubious. And uh, the lady actually. Had bought her own journal to peer review her own research, basically. So it's a very content, I, you know, I'm not just trying to trash it, but it is a very contentious topic within the Sasquatch community. There's a, a great refutation of that alleged DNA study by a guy named Dr. Haskell Hart, who talks about, you know, some of the things that went wrong and how it, the process was kind of wrong. And people think he's just a guy attacking it because of the Bigfoot, but he's actually, I believe, a, a Bigfoot eyewitness and is a researcher, but also happens to be a PhD um, so it's, it's one of these things with the Sasquatch topic is you'll find there's a lot of controversies, a lot of strange things going on. I mean, um, there are native stories, yes, of, uh, creatures killing people, uh, stealing women to, to mate with them, that sort of thing. I mean, th- but a lot of those just are stories. I don't know how much of that based in reality because, um, you know, we, as humans, regardless of where we're from, we try to explain things away. So, um, you know, you have folklore that revolves around certain things that we're not familiar with. So that's a lot of these Sasquatch stories are maybe just ways to try to explain what's going on. You know, these they're because the descriptions for Sasquatch for the native cultures vary from it being a friendly kind of protector of the forest to being uh, something cannibal giants. Other tribes describe them as just they're like a lost tribe of people that live up in the mountains and they have a lot of different kind of uh descriptions and it varies and you think you know for the safe it was the same animal that sort of thing they'd have a consistent description well no actually it's humans factoring in there so something i'd heard discussed by a a primatologist was uh, named dr anna Karis, who talked about her research on slow lorises which are these small little primate like creatures in parts of indonesia she described running into the indigenous people of those areas and you know, we're talking about these small, little nocturnal kind of primates that I think have this sort of poisonous kind of bite or something like that. They're a very, very weird animal. If you look at it, I mean, they have these giant eyes; they're crazy looking. Look up slow lorises; they're kind of cute too. But um, these, these, these groups, these indigenous groups, live in these in these rainforests in Indonesia. You'd go to one tribe, and they would say, "Well, if you saw a slow loris, it was a curse. You know, you'd be cursed, or it was like bad luck." And then they'd go to the the valley over. Talking about the same animal, that tribe there would say, well, if you see a slow loris, you should kill it right away because it's a demon. And then you go to another tribe, another valley over, and they say, well, when you see the slow loris, it's good luck. It means that you have great things coming. They're all describing the same animal but they're talking about it in such different ways because they're just interpreting it the way that people are. So you may have the case in place like the Pacific Northwest, where you've got all these different tribes and different bands of the same tribe that maybe speak a different dialect and that sort of thing. And they are seeing the same types of creatures and they are describing, you know, one's a cannibal giant, one's a, you know, a protector of the woods, one is this or that. So it's interesting how we as humans, regardless of where we are, we kind of put our own spin on things uh, even if it may be describing the same creature or the same animal, um, so.
1: I mean, even so looking definitely. at it from a human side too. If they are more human-like and more intelligent than we give them credit for, I mean, who's to say that different uh, different groups may not interact differently? Just kind of like how people do. You know, you could be walk past one group of people and then the nicest people in the world, the next group is the rudest people you've ever met in your life. Um, you know, it could be the same as Sasquatch. And even depending on what their interactions are with humans going through like their family line, um, you know, one group of Sasquatch could be raised that humans are this scary thing to avoid. The other one's raised that anytime you see a human start throwing rocks at them to get them to go away, like they, they could be a little bit more intelligent on that aspect than, you know, we give them credit for. And they may not purely just be animalistic. They may be more... Human-like, as far as like uh, thought process goes, than than we think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they probably have to be at this point to stay as elusive as they have. Um, and I do think, yeah, I think it's circumstantial. I mean, you could have, you maybe you've run into humans before and they've shot at you, or they've just they've trashed, they've clear cutted a forest. You're probably going to look somewhat negatively upon something that's come into your home and destroyed it, and you may you may teach your offspring to avoid, you know, those. Strange-looking, hairless sasquatches that wear these weird colored clothes—that may be something that goes on. Yeah, it's absolutely. You may have differences in, in animals based on their experience, and you know these these things are clearly not just regular animals. There's something very unusual about these sasquatches in terms of uh, you know being more human-like than I think most people would even want to consider. Uh, I, I lean more towards their, them being some sort of a you know, relict hominid kind of thing in that category of where absolutely. Uh, very intelligent they'd have to be at this point again to be as elusive as they have and um, I think you know some of these areas maybe where like this cab in remote Alaska or any of these re- really remote areas where maybe there's not a lot of people um, these Sasquatches probably aren't as exposed to humans on a regular basis as maybe somewhere more Populated, so they I mean, we know that animals can adapt their behavior very quickly. So, within a generation or two, elk and other species will adapt based on different predator threats or different environmental threats. And those are animals that aren't. I mean, elk and that sort of thing. They're not that smart of animals. I mean, they're they're kind of on that bottom of the food chain because they're a prey for pretty much everyone else. So, if those kinds of animals can easily adapt or, or partially adapt to uh, dangers within a generation or two. Why wouldn't something as intelligent as or maybe more intelligent than one of the other great apes such as gorillas and that sort of thing? So um, there's just a lot we don't know. A lot of it is speculation. There's a lot of kind of stories out there, a lot of anecdotal things. But, um, you know, it's interesting kind of trying to come up with theories because that's really all we're doing is just kind of speculating in a lot of ways.
1: Oh yeah. Until we can actually sit down and maybe have a conversation with one one day, if we ever (laughs) able to break that language barrier. But um, before we run out of time, because I know we're going to run about an hour and a half or so, I know that recently uh, you went down and you were starting to do some research into the skunk ape. Um, I'd like to dig a little bit into your research uh, as far as the skunk ape goes.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've done a number of uh, films down in Florida and in the South as well, just in general. So uh, last year, early 2022, we went down to Florida and did Basically, four films on the the Florida skunk ape kind of phenomena, which is sort of to put it simply, like just the southern version of Bigfoot, like Bigfoot living in a swamp as opposed to remote Alaskan wilderness. Uh, the descriptions are pretty similar, generally. Um, sometimes a little bit smaller, maybe more shaggier, a little bit more aggressive encounters reported some some parts of the South, but uh, the Everglades specifically. So we went down there. We had done we covered the Everglades. Uh, central Florida, the Green Swamp, the Ocala National Forest, as well as the Panhandle area of Florida. But I went back actually early this year as well, back to the Everglades area, so big cypress and that sort of area, covering some of the Sasquatch stuff there, the skunk ape. And uh, it's just a fascinating area. I mean, there's so much biological diversity. There's so many animals down there. You've got the Florida Panthers and black bears and alligators, and the only place in the world where we have alligators and crocodiles living in the same habitat like in the Everglades. So there's just a lot there. Um, but we spent some time really getting into those environments and talk about a difference. I mean, compared to an area like Alaska, you're talking swamps where you have venomous snakes like cotton mouths and uh, rattlesnakes, invasive pythons, Florida panthers, which are basically a mountain lion that lives in the swamp, a lot of different crazy stuff. And then of course they have these reports going on for years of these ape-like creatures seen also in these uh, swamp environments.
1: Um, what what exactly inspired you guys to go down there? Was it like a specific encounter that somebody had mentioned, kind of like how your, your cabin experiences started? Or uh, was it just kind of like a general trying to kind of do just to the whole topic, just kind of going down there and kind of getting a well-rounded coverage of all of it? Yeah,
0: it was definitely more of a curiosity than like a specific, hey, I had this happen on my property, come down here kind of thing. It was definitely just, I mean, skunk ape, when it comes to the bigfoot or Sasquatch topic, Skunk Cape is a very—it's like a subset almost of in popularity. I mean, you can mention bigfoot or Sasquatch, people know you're talking about, and some people, if you mention Skunk Cape, they may know. And it's kind of like, again, it's like a southern version of of Sasquatch seen in other areas. So, just curiosity, we want to go down there, and those environments are so difficult. And I looked at Florida, and I just struggled with the concept of, well, you know, you've got this state, Florida is now one of the most populated states in the U.S. I mean, the population has been booming the last few years. I think it's 22 plus million reside in Florida. But if you look at the density maps, everyone lives on the coasts, whether it be the East coast with Tampa, the West coast, Daytona, down to Miami, everyone is huddled along the coast. These millions of people stacked on top of each other. You drive an hour outside of Miami you're in the middle of nowhere with uh, uh, palmettos and pine trees and swampy kind of environments and, and these vast prairies and these thick swamps and forests that support hundreds of Florida panthers and, mount, and, and black bears and other creatures. It's such a weird juxtaposition, you know, actually spending time in all those environments in Florida and saying, well, wow, there actually is a habitat suitable for perhaps supporting something as large as a skunk ape. I mean, if it's supporting all these other things, it's really intriguing. I mean, yeah, you're getting a lot of those humans coming in and those environments consistently are getting smaller and smaller, which is unfortunate. But, um, you know, there's a lot of conservation efforts around the the Florida panther and those sorts of things and preserving those corridors of travel between these large green areas that are, you know, like going between Miami, Florida, and Naples, Florida, you have what's called alligator alley, which is just this massive highway takes you like two, two and a half hours to drive, basically from one side of the coast to the other side of the coast and that drive in, there's nothing. There's just nothing on either side. I mean, you've got the big Cypress national preserve, which is uh, larger than the state of Rhode Island and it's just a protected area and that connects to the Everglades. You've got shy of 3 million acres of protected land in that area where I mean, you can go for miles and miles and just be in remote areas. Um, so, That's definitely an area I've wanted to focus on because I think it's so interesting. And some of the history there is really intriguing with the sightings. And it's just kind of making sense that if these things do live in other parts of the country, why wouldn't they be here too?
1: Yeah. And I mean, just like people too, they kind of adapt to the region in order to kind of fit what they need for that. So assumably something that's living in the swamps um, is going to be a little bit more small and slender and be able to kind of move and link through stuff better where something up in Alaska, you need big power with a lot of uh, body mass in order to be able to maintain its temperature. And even going down to Florida, they'd be a little bit skinnier because they're not trying to maintain all of their temperature. But uh, when you were down there, did you guys end up, one, finding any evidence? And also, you said that you found a lot of very interesting stories as far as skunk ape encounter goes. Um, what, do you, what was the most interesting encounter for you, at least, when you were doing your research?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, uh, just to address your point real quick about, you know, the differences, say, Alaska and Florida. You actually have something called Bergman's Rule, where basically the, the further north you go, the larger animals get. So deer in Florida are tiny compared to the deer that I get up here in New Hampshire. Even our moose here in New Hampshire are small compared to the ones in Alaska. As, as you go further north, the animals get larger. So even black bears in Florida are a lot smaller. We saw one cross the road. Uh, when we were there and, and this year we found, we casted prints of black bears down in Florida. How small um, are we so, talking
1: out of curiosity? Cause I'm from Michigan. I mean, uh, so I'm used to like the little bit bigger black bears, but yeah,
0: you guys probably get black bears that are probably around the size of the ones we get, you know, where like five, 600 pounds would be a, a decent sized bear. Right. I mean, I think the record around here would probably be six, 700 pounds, uh, which is pretty big for a black bear. Um, and we're talking, you know, moose get into almost, uh, can get to 1200 pounds, but, um, down there, I mean, the black bears, they're not that small, but you know, maybe like a large dog, 300 pounds, 400 pounds, that sort of thing. So they, they can get some big ones, but the one we saw was very small and lanky and he just kind of darted across the road from a, a quite a distance. We were driving this road. He just crossed it. But the prints we were finding in, um, in the, in the area we were in just this past January, were are decent sized. I mean, you know, uh, five, five, six inches, kind of pretty decent black bear track. But, um, what's so interesting about it is, you know, you imagine one of the things we struggled with was how wet the environment was and you know, how tra- how slow you move compared to being able to hike in the mat, even up a mountain is a lot easier than putting on boots and putting snake guards on and moving through areas where there's constantly water everywhere. I'm thinking to myself, why would something like a Sasquatch want to live in this wet Gross environment. I mean, it makes no sense. And then you think about there's literally panthers here. So we're talking about mountain lions that live in, that are adapted to living in the, the Rocky Mountains, the, the Redwoods, the Pacific Northwest, the Southwest deserts, formerly the East Coast, up and down the Appalachians. This is an animal that lives in all these habitats. And then you've got black bears, same thing. You find black bear from Alaska to Florida. So these are animals that you know, they don't have webbed feet. You wouldn't expect a a mountain lion to be walking around in the swamp, but in Florida, they are there. So those animals have adapted. So it's, as you mentioned, with people being able to adapt, what about other things that live closer to land like a Sasquatch? So um, when we were there, I mean, one of the more interesting things we found at least, uh, because we, like I said, we've done at this point, I think five films total on Florida. And, you know, we did a whole kind of Florida road trip that first year and when we were in Big Cypress that first year, we found one area. We were hiking in the middle of the Big Cypress, middle of nowhere kind of area. We'd hiked a little bit off trail, and we found these weird kind of impressions in the mud that almost looked like a one, two kind of footprint. Super hard to say what it was. I mean, it was it was just weird. And there was a lot of... Were tr- they
1: side so by side or like
0: straight line? They were, they were sort of like one was... A little bit forward, the other one was kind of next to it, not like parallel to each other, but you know, as if you put your if you put your left forward, a little, your left foot a little forward, and your right foot, like your heel, kind of near um, where your your toes kind of to the right of where your heel would be. So still kind, kind of a weird head.
1: walking pattern for a human. Like it's still possible, but still kind of like, like an be, awkward oh, walking pattern. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, it, it's possible it was human for sure, but it was just it was just it was weird because it was like in this mud patch and they were super undefined. They were just general impressions, and you know, stomping with our boots, we could get the same kind of impression. They weren't particularly large, but there was almost like a trail from those tracks that kind of was broken trees and limbs. Sort of weird, It's kind of strange. So we found that as it was sort of getting dark, and then we go back to our cars uh, as we were hiking on this trail that's kind of like an elevated area that goes in between these swamp. And then there's prairies that it opens up to. So we go back and then we're in that same area that night. And um, one of my buddies, Tate, he does a a wood knock on a tree. And he uses this like mini baseball bat. It's like a mini slugger bat up against the side of a cypress tree. And it made this really crystal clear knock sound. I mean, I think he did two, two or three. I don't remember. It's it's in our video. Um, And then like less uh, less than two minutes later, we hear what sounds like a knock just like that same kind of sound from the distance happen, and we all kind of all agreed that's what it sounded like it sounded super close to that that knock sound didn't hear anything else like it the rest of the night we walked around for hours uh, you know we went off trail in the in the dark in some of these areas, and you know, you're constantly w- looking around because you don't want to step on a gator or step on uh, you know, one of these poisonous snakes or venomous snakes or anything like that. But that was kind of weird that we experienced that. And looking at the audio afterwards, it it just sounds like somebody copied our knock noise. and I mean i'm I'm fairly, fairly confident that we were the absolute only people in there because we were off of an area called, Turner River Road which is like a I think it's over 10 miles and it's just a straight road dirt road that goes through through this area and there's like one way in one way out so if you are on that road you can see cars coming from miles away it's the weirdest thing because I live in an area with hills and mountains so when you're in an area that's totally flat and you just see headlights coming at you for 20 30 minutes they're just getting closer and closer and closer so we were on a trail in that area and there was nobody else there. I mean, we were on the only trail. Some We would have seen someone walking in or out. It would have been Im- implausible. Nobody was out there camping. There's nowhere to camp. I mean, it was, it was a, as inhospitable of terrain as you can imagine. I mean, you're talking water that can be three, four feet deep in some parts that you just sink right into. So it was kind of perplexing. Um, if it was legit, then, I mean, that tells us that maybe those things down there also do wood knocks because there's not a lot of reports of that. In, in, in that part of Florida and other parts of Florida, there's plenty, but really kind of interesting. So I don't know what to make of it, but um, there's a lot of stories there in that, um, in that County, which is Collier County, Florida, which has the most sightings in all Florida. A couple of the other counties up North have some, have, have a good amount of sightings. Those are areas tra- typically associated with skunk ape sightings, but Collier County has a lot and um, not far from where we were. I mean, there's sightings up on that same road, in the uh in the 90s there was a tour bus of tourists going up there on a wildlife viewing tour and they saw this ape-like creature across the road in front of them uh there was also not far from where we're we talking a few miles off the road off of the highway alligator alley that cuts through there somebody was off on one of the trails there shooting and some kind of creature came out and showed itself to them and it's just weird i mean it's just such a massive area and you really only have one road in that goes into the kind of park, which is at Turner river road. And you've got this highway that cuts through. There's no off ramps. Like if it was so weird is on Turner river road, going to one of the campgrounds that's up there, you go on a little, you pass under the highway. You can hear the cars going and, you hear the highway, but if I was on that spot on the highway where I'm going over Turner River Road, I would have to drive almost an hour plus just to get to that spot we were in by taking an exit, driving down a different area, coming up, driving up Turner River Road, not easy to get into by car. So it just adds to the kind of remoteness and there's there's um, just a long history of sightings in that area going back for quite a while
1: just kind of uh, starting to theorize a little bit on skunk ape too and uh, kind of going into like the characteristics of them uh, more often than not it seems like they're seen with like longer shaggier hair and uh, you were mentioning the fact that you had to wear like special pants and stuff so you don't get bit by snakes so I'm almost kind of wondering if they've adapted to have longer hair so it's more of like a guard from snakes because it's harder for a snake to bite something that has longer shaggier hair so it almost kind of fit with the region and I mean even with the region being harder to traverse in uh, maybe the reason why wood knocking isn't so prevalent down there is because it seems like it's more of like a form of communication between them to kind of let them know where each other's locations are. But if they're living in swamps and they're possibly more isolated types of Sasquatch or they maybe they live kind of like by themselves for a lot of their life, maybe there's not as much of like a need for it because they're just, it's harder to traverse and like produce a family. They're probably more so just like out for themselves trying to like bog through the waters and stuff. And maybe they only yeah. meet up at certain times just for like breeding season, theoretically.
0: I mean, it could be that theory is about as good as anything else we have. I mean, we don't have a lot of information to work with on, on that kind of thing. But no, it, it is interesting. I mean, you think something, you know, you want to have less hair in a, in a swamp-like environment, right? But some of these sightings, they describe it as being shaggier, whereas you have in places like Pacific Northwest, other areas, there's more of like a finer kind of hair or thinner hair, but the Sasquatch reports run the spectrum all over the place. I mean, there's even some reports in mountainous areas of are more shaggy, but it seems like some of the in, oh, in the South, the reports in general are more on the shaggier kind of side, which again, I, I think would be kind of strange to how humid and gross it is, but maybe that is some form of protection. I don't know. I just know having a beard and being hairy down there myself, not, not very fun with the humidity, But
1: it might be some form of camouflage too, because if they're in a swamp, they're all wet and soggy. Maybe they can kind of blend in more with uh, like all the different foliage. If they're kind of droopy and kind of blended into everything versus like being defined hair, like it just kind of gives them more coverage.
0: Sure. You got Spanish moss that hangs in a lot of those cypress trees down South. That's very, it's almost, you know, that kind of spooky look, spooky swamp look. So, I mean, something like that maybe could blend in. I don't know, but I mean, in most of these areas that you're in, trying to find something, I mean, you can see other animals that just can disappear into these environments. I've, I've had gigantic moose with, you know, humongous antlers disappear basically in front of me in the tree line. We can't even see it anymore and how quick it happens. So uh, stealth is definitely on the side of all these creatures living out there. And I mean, when we were down there, we had found evidence of panthers and footprints and that sort of thing, but we never saw one. Um, You know, they're very elusive. Cats are known to be elusive, but um, something Sasquatch-like, I mean, it's, if they're, if they're, if they are down in Florida, there's probably not gigantic, you know, huge numbers of them either, because you do have a limited habitat as opposed to, say, Alaska or somewhere where you can really, you know, hey, I want to go over there, or you can, you can have so much more at your disposal um, than you would be in, like, a more confined area. And when I say, like, Big Cypress, yes, it is confined, Big Cypress, the Everglades, you still have millions of acres, but it's not like you can just hop over a mountain range and you know, basically have all of Canada tra- to traverse through. You're kind of limited in the space you have. So,
1: Yeah, they almost, yeah. again, need to kind of go, go back to camouflaging themselves more. And even going into what you're stating about uh, animals being bigger in the north, it's just kind of needed, depending on the climate too, and less, more scarcity of food, um, be it that it's a swamp, you know, they're catching probably like smaller fish, different things like that. Um, that kind of fits for the food that they maybe aren't taking in as much cause they're not taking in giant animals and trying to maintain their weight. Um, they're just catching smaller, easier meals. So they're more slim and agile because their intention is to be able to regularly eat these smaller meals versus trying to like load up on catching some like big prey like they may in the North.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Definitely. I think, actually, I think there's probably more food sources in some of these Southern areas as you mentioned, granted smaller. So when I was in Louisiana recently, I mean, I was being shown around by my buddy Scott, who runs the Bigfoot Mapping Project, and you've got crawfish in the water, you've got little turtles and frogs and snakes. So you could load up on a lot of this little stuff. But yeah, maybe it wouldn't be one big meal in a sitting unless you were to get, say, you know, an alligator or a deer or a hog. But those are those three animals are pretty much the biggest animals you're gonna get in like places like Louisiana or um Florida, that sort of thing, aside from those bear and those panther, right? But um, They may not even mess with to...
1: that kind of stuff just because it's so easy to catch the smaller, readily available stuff. They may well, not yeah, even see definitely. a reason to go after the big stuff, especially if they don't need yeah. to like load up for winter, for example, to try to maintain weight.
0: You have constant food sources year-round. I mean, you can just stick your hand into a pond and pull out a bunch of insects and, and frogs and that sort of thing, so you can just load up on a lot of that stuff, which makes sense. I mean, if you really want to be daring, I guess you could challenge a gator and eat that. But, uh, you know, why even do something like that if you have the disposal with all these other animals? You have more of options. But, uh, yeah, maybe some of these more northern areas, especially with winter, you'd want to load up on meat, you know, maybe get a moose or something like that, deer, whatever else may, may come about. But, I mean, a lot of reports of Sasquatch around the country, they seem to be scavengers. There's reports of hunting, deer, hogs being taken. Um scavenging through dumpsters even just so So it seems like they would be more like us who were omnivores i mean a lot of sightings up here in new england that i'm aware of especially northern maine northern new hampshire when the blueberries are in season we're talking you know august kind of time a lot of people got blueberry picking a lot of these remote areas you have a pretty fair chance of running into a black bear that's out there also blueberry picking you know, doing that same sort of thing there's at least like four or five sightings i'm aware of from between new hampshire and maine of people seeing what they thought was a black bear until it stands up on two legs kind of looks at them and walks away like a man and looks like an ape like creature, just basically blueberry picking. So you have reports from across the country of these sorts of behaviors being exhibited, whether they be car, you know, actually a- actively hunting, scavenging uh, from other food sources, you know, eating. I mean, even some of the reports and one of the reports we got in Alaska that we were told about was, a guy prospecting for gold two guys actually and they'd come across these sasquatches sitting basically in, in this area taking leaves and stripping leaves off of branches and just eating them like a gorilla would do like footage of gorillas just sitting there stripping the leaves and right into their mouths. so you have a wide spectrum of behavior and things that have been reported with sasquatches so it seems like they would i mean it would make sense for them to be more omnivorous um, as opposed to even say gorillas. I mean, chimps are more omnivorous than any other great ape, so they're more like us in that respect.
1: Very true. So um, starting to kind of wrap up a little bit, and I'd definitely love to have you back on in the future because we could definitely dig into a lot more of this stuff in the future. Um, so I always like to leave with words of wisdom from the guests to the listeners. So if there's any words of wisdom you could bestow on possibly the next generation of researchers, what would it be?
0: I would say don't believe everything you see online for sure. That would be a, <laughs> that would be a big one. I think just in general, uh, maybe kind of cliche, but think for yourself, really be a critical thinker. Unfortunately, with a topic like Sasquatch, because there are so little established facts, anyone can really come in and make up facts that then can be accepted or widely held to be true. And then turns out they're not. So just be, you know, be cautious. Do your due diligence. Think for yourself. Don't believe what other people say, you know, vet their claims. Um, just because somebody is your friend doesn't mean they they might not have misinterpreted something. I mean, they may have thought they had a Sasquatch encounter, but um, just kind of critically examine some of the the stories and that sort of thing. And And again, just do your own research. That's the biggest thing is don't believe what you see online or on TVs and don't take my word for it. You know, the only thing I want you to believe me on is that you should do your own research. That's something I think we can agree on. But if you disagree with me on everything else or think you know better, that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinions. But um, I think we, with this subject, we just really need more critical thinking and level-headedness and not sensationalism. A lot of people, especially nowadays, there's another, uh, I guess, tip for people um, is just learn as much as you can about the woods. Go to an area, your local area, learn about the wildlife, learn about things that you might – not be familiar with that you would hear a noise at night and say, Oh, that sounds like a Sasquatch when in reality could be a strange owl call because the more you learn about that environment, the more you'll be able to say, okay, what I just experienced or heard is this, or once you start, you know, kind of getting rid of the other options, Sasquatch should be the last thing you assume is what's going on, unless you physically see one in front of you um, when it comes to sound and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I think just being level-headed would be probably the, the best option. And, you know, uh, just really kind of try to stay focused. And there's a lot of craziness in the topic, but I think there's plenty of interesting stuff to keep you going too.
1: So you have to have a good mix between being open-minded and being a skeptic at the same time. That's the only way you're really going to progress with the research, in my opinion, at least.
0: Yeah, I would say so. I think, and you know, a lot of people get scared of the word skeptic and it's you know, there's a difference between something like a skeptic and a scoptic. So you have a skeptic who's going to say, you know, you saw 8 foot tall ape like hairy creature. I don't know if I believe you, you know, can you tell me more about it? And they can say, well, it's interesting, but maybe I disagree with you. That sort of thing. There's a difference between that and somebody who's like, Oh, you saw Bigfoot, you're an idiot. And anyone who thinks Bigfoot is real is an absolute idiot. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's scoptic. That's kind of why we use the term scoptic. I think skepticism is good. You know, if I were to have a Bigfoot sighting, you know, I'm a guy who goes and looks for Bigfoot. I would be skeptical. I would, I would try to run it through people I trust who maybe are my friends and say, Hey, please, you know, I need you to go through and, and, you know, give me a BS check because you know, I'm out there looking for this thing and I want to see one so bad. And maybe I do see one. Am I going crazy? Is it wishful thinking? And I would want them to grill me to kind of see if my story actually makes sense. Uh, I think that's something that's, that's great to do just to kind of confirm. Okay. Maybe it actually did happen sort of thing, but yeah, I think uh, skeptical thinking is good, but not to the point where you're just, you know, because you, I've seen extremes on both sides, right? There's there's people who are the skeptic, scoffed types where anybody who mentions the word Bigfoot automatically, oh, they're just dumb or they're misidentifying something. You've got the extreme believer on the other side who, no matter how many times you convince them, it's, this is not what's going on. I mean, I have people telling me they're finding these stick structures that they say are built by Bigfoot in an area where I can literally sign up to do a bushcrafting class in the same area. But no matter how many times you tell them this, they will not believe you. Uh, so don't, don't be like those two. Be be open-minded, but not to the point where your mind falls out.
1: Yeah. Don't shoot yourself in the foot. More often than not, the <laughs> truth's in the middle.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I,
1: that's a cliche thing to say, but
0: I mean, the truth really is you get these extremes. And I think somewhat in between, but again, just do your own research and come to your own conclusions and, and don't trust... Uh, you know, what somebody on YouTube or something is telling you. And don't trust me, just please, I want you to fact check. me.
1: (laughs) Going back to your work, though, it's absolutely amazing. And for anybody that's uh, trying to find your work and wants to look into the stuff you're doing, uh, where can they come and find your work? And where can they come and find you at?
0: Yeah, the best place to find my work and get in contact with me would probably be my website, which is pedacovmedia.com. So that's P-E-T-A-K-O-V-Media.com. And I I like to funnel people there because it's got, you know, if you want to send me an email or Instagram or anything like that, it's got links to all the videos on there. So you can check that out. But, um, you know, if you want to check out our series, I guess the link, my links are all on the, on my website. But if you go to small town monsters on YouTube, you'll find all of our content. So we have not just my series, but other series and other films that we release on YouTube too. So um, those are probably the best places to find some of our stuff. But if you uh, if you want to watch Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, definitely uh, check us out.
1: And of course, I'll include all of your links in the show description. So if anybody wants to come and find it, they can find it quick and easy. And uh, I appreciate you making the time to come on to the show today. And it's always a fun conversation with you, man. And I'm really looking forward to the next time we get to do this.
0: Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, the next time we speak, we'll have uh, more evidence or something else really mind blowing to share.
1: What's uh, just for the, for the listeners too? Is only a last minute question. Uh, what's your next project that you're uh, looking into working on?
0: Okay, so I'll give a, a, a quick as quick of an answer as I can. So, currently doing a lot of the continue with the Bigfoot Beyond the Trail stuff. So, we've got a documentary on the Honey Island Swamp Monster coming out of Louisiana. So those we'll have a couple other videos, Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, some New England stuff too, but. Um, I don't know if I've, I've, I haven't officially announced this yet, but we're going to be doing a whole kind of series dedicated to Alaska. So it's going to be very similar to the Alaskan coastal Sasquatch dealing with that same property as well as other stories in Alaska. And that's going to be kind of a spinoff to Bigfoot beyond the trail, very similar format, but we're just going to focus solely on Alaska. And, you know, it's going to be six or so feature kind of films uh, really focusing in on that.
1: And I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing in the future, man, because everything that I've seen so far, it's always awesome work. So just some more awesome stuff to look forward to as far as the cryptozoologist enthusiasts go. So, Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. If you guys enjoyed the show and you guys don't mind leaving a review or a rating, I definitely appreciate it. One good way to help the show grow and get it into the eyes and ears of other people. Uh, if any of you guys want to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, you guys can email me at inquiries of Our Reality Podcast at Outlook.com, or you can shoot me a message on Instagram, or you can go to the link tree and fill up the submission form up at the top, and that'll go directly to my email. That link tree is L A N K T R E E slash Increase of Our Reality Podcast. And uh, if you guys don't want to have to sit there and type all that out, of course, it's available down in the show description. And with that, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody.